Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the NY Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am Adam Lowther, your host, and today we have a great guest. For many of you, if you read many RAND products, you're probably familiar with Dr. Raphael S. Cohen. He is the director of the strategy program at RAND and Project Air Force, and he writes some of RAND's best work We've known each other a while, and uh, I happen to think he's also a great guy and one of the smartest people at RAND today. And so with that, Rafi, thanks for thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Well, thanks for having me on, Adam. It's uh, fun and exciting. So you wrote an article in War on the Rocks a few months back in which you talked about deterrence and comparing some of the debate as it relates to the war in Ukraine. Is this a wise thing? Should we be focused on China? Tell our listeners a little bit about the argument that you made and why you think that we're we're actually doing okay with our approach to Ukraine. Yeah, so there's this sort of false pretense out there that uh, deterrence is sort of a zero-sum type commodity, i.e., if you try to deter China, that comes at the expense of Ukraine and vice versa. And my argument in the War on the Rocks piece that you mentioned is that deterrence is actually a far more elastic quality than many people conceive of it. In other words, that by uh, promoting a successful outcome to the war in Ukraine, you actually have a a better chance of deterring China vis-a-vis Taiwan and elsewhere um, than many people give it credit for. And there's several reasons for this. One, when you look at sort of the hard military capabilities that we're sending to Ukraine, some of them will not actually be relevant to a Taiwan scenario. If you look at the budgets that we are allocating towards uh, uh, supporting Ukraine, none of that's really coming at an expense of the overall defense budget and really of, um, of de- again, deterring. China. Moreover, if you look at sort of what the war in Ukraine is helping us do, is it's helping us really rethink about our defense industrial base, and particularly our ability to supply munitions. Um, And that has been a longstanding challenge, which we really haven't gotten traction on for quite some time. Um, And that's slowly being fixed because of the war in Ukraine, and that's going to have sort of secondary positive effects when we think about a war in China. But finally, and probably most importantly, I think is the idea that deterrence is ultimately in the de- in people's mind, particularly in the mind of your adversary. And if you want to increase doubt in Xi's mind about whether or not going to war in uh, Taiwan is a good idea, then all he has to do is look across to his neighbor, of which he has this no uh, limits friendship with, 
to Vladimir Putin and look at what a mistake it has been strategically for Putin to go to war in Ukraine that he thought would last a couple of days, it lasted now a couple of years, uh, and it's put uh, the Putin regime on a precarious path. And that, I think, has the most deterrent effect whatsoever is over and above the military capabilities. Yeah, you make a good point. And, and as I've observed, kind of the two sides of the debate, I mean, I see the I see where both sides come from this. Hey, we should this isn't our real fight. The real fights in Asia. So let's focus there versus this, you know, the idea of, hey, we you know, if we can kick the Russians in the teeth, that's always a good thing. And this is a great, great opportunity to do that and to help a, you know, a fledgling democracy to succeed. And, you know, as I think about it, I, I tend to agree with you that now that we have some skin in the game, that for the sake of deterrence, the worst thing we could do would be to end our support to Ukraine, that that would probably do more to undermine our credibility with Xi Jinping than anything else we could do. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, I agree with that, Adam. I mean, if you if you need further confirmation of this, you know, look at Taiwan's official position. Taiwan is actually very much strongly of the belief that the best way they can do to, for their own security is a successful outcome in Ukraine, um, because that has precedent, and precedence has deterrent effect. Yeah, and, and as as you think about China and deterring China, and and one of the things that you know, some folks may not have seen as you've been writing quite a bit lately for Rand on great power conflict, you know, in the different regions of the world where we have geographic combatant commands and thinking about what is, what is, you know, this tripolar competition and this renewed great power competition, what does it mean? So as you look at the Ukraine and place it within its context and then look at China's increasing assertiveness. And we seem to know, you know, China is going to have to act if it wants, you know, I can imagine, I don't, I don't know if you see it the same way, but that Xi Jinping has this calendar with 2049 circled, and then he's sort of marching back to when does he think he needs to take each set of actions so that he can have those brilliant parades through the, you know, the streets of Beijing, the streets of Taipei, you know, the streets, you know, Lhasa, wherever he wants to be. And so he can say, hey, we've reunified. I did it. You know, we've we've got China is now restored. And, and so as you look at just how that all plays out and then the Russians trying to maintain some sense of we're a great power, too. How do you see this this, you know, great game playing out in the years ahead? Sure. So I think the first and foremost, we have to understand that we have a simultaneity problem here, which is, you know, it used to be, historically speaking, that the United States maintained a two-war standard, the idea that it could bat two adversaries in two different parts of the world simultaneously. Now, beginning uh, with the Trump administration in 2018 um, and continuing on in the Biden administration, we've backed off of that. We now have a one-war standard, which means that, you know, if in a scenario pops up in one or more of the major theaters, we would be left with a cupboard spare to deal with the other one. Now, that I think is a mistake. It's a mistake for several reasons, partly because China and Russia don't see it that way. Um, they, The two of them are increasingly intertwined. And so the United States 
has to be able to combat both of these challenges simultaneously and, you know, resource accordingly for it. And that, I think, is the sort of crux of, you know, partly why you need to support Ukraine here is that by tying up Russia, we've actually sort of strengthened our hand and given us more flexibility to deal with China and us in other places. You know, the big challenge, and I I'm assume you might have seen there was an article out today and President Biden is calling up the reserves. And I think it's about 3,000, I think, is the limit. And then there is some call up of, of the inactive ready reserve, which I was a bit surprised. And this is this is all in support of the UK, the Ukraine conflict. And I guess what was sort of shocking to me, and, and I bring this up because as you point out, we, we probably have to be able to fight two wars. And, and that is if we're not, we're in no wars right now. I mean, we're supporting the Ukrainians, but we're already calling up the reserves in, in a, you know, and we're not even in conflict. And so I sort of wonder what is the real state of our military and and you know we've we've been listening about recruiting shortfalls that were last year and projected for this year and i sort of wonder you know as you look at this great power competition are we well placed poorly placed are we in a position where we can get where we need to be how how do you see the us performance as you look forward well, I mean, to your first point about the calling up of the reserves, I think it's important for your listeners to realize that the reserve component has a series of key enablers in it um, for a variety of reasons. When we talk about force management, we've decided to put a lot of our logistical backbone inside the reserves. We can debate about whether or not that's a smart idea or a bad idea, but that does mean that calling up the reserves has become a more commonplace idea. The idea that the reserves was only sort of the break glass in time of war uh, concept sort of went out the uh, door, well, beginning in the global war on terrorism, and it sort of continues on till today. I think the second point, though, which you mentioned, which is actually, I think, a critical component here, is um, the recruiting shortfalls. Uh, the Army in particular has a massive recruiting deficit. Um, now, I think there's a couple of drivers for that. Um, we have a very strong economy here, and if you have a strong economy, recruiting tends to suffer. But nonetheless, I mean, I think that does raise a question about the sustainability of uh, military recruiting and retention going forward. Um, you know, we've come up on the 50th anniversary of the all-volunteer force. Um, if these recruiting shortfalls continue, we need to rethink how we encourage and motivate people to serve. Yeah. And then just some of the, the data, you know, I wrote an article in um, the journal out of NDU, I forget, I'm drawing a blank, uh, a few years back looking at who the American servicemen, service women, who are they and what are their, you know, what are their characteristics? And, and it was a pretty upbeat story, but it seems as though much as culture has shifted pretty rapidly over the last 10 or 15 years, we seem to be shifting societally in a sense that an increasing percentage of 18 to 24 year old Americans is unqualified for military service. And it's, it's grown dramatically in a relatively short period of time. And I wonder if, you know, in addition to, you know, a good economy, but this increasing percentage of Americans who can't serve for 
you know, criminal records, physical fitness, um, drug use, other things like that. Is there a way that we can turn that, you know, turn that around? Because I think the latest data I saw was like 22% are even eligible to serve. Yeah, so I think there's a couple issues here. Um, First off, you know, it historically used to be that uh, a lot of Americans would have exposure to the military early on, you know, partly because you were coming off of a draft year of military. So even if they didn't directly serve and their parents didn't directly serve, well, then their grandfathers served in World War II or during the Cold War, for instance. And so you had that sort of personal tie to the military, which I think encouraged people to, to serve. Um, moreover, you know, this is, I think, a function of BRAC or the decision to close bases in certain parts of the country. You know, I was talking to a senior policymaker uh, just the other day, in fact, and she pointed out that, look, we don't really have much of a military presence in the Northeast where there's a significant Amer- American population presence. And as a result, when, uh, you know, that politician talks to a constituents, the military is just not front and uh, in the foremost of their mind. I don't think that we do ourselves any help there. Now, as to the latter question about why, why that percentage of Americans who are not eligible to serve have sort of ticked upwards, I think that does prompt a variety of concerns here. Um, I think it you know, prompts a concern about the basic health of our youth, uh, but I think it also um, raises concerns about you know, how we think about military service and you know, whether or not, you know, particularly as we move into certain uh, new high technology parts of the service, you know, do we, if we, if someone is a really good cyber expert, do they actually need to be able to run a two mile run in, you know, X number of minutes? I think that that raises sort of the question about, you know, both, I think, on fixing the supply problem of, you know, we need to deal with the drug problem, we need to deal with the physical fitness problem. But at the same time, I think we also need to have a more realistic conception of, you know, what exactly on the skill set do we need to build the warriors of the future? Yeah. And then as we put this in a larger context in this, you know, tripolar world where we have two peers, is as you look at the U.S. position vis-a-vis, you know, Russia and China and then in the nuclear realm, North Korea, which is you know, it's making great strides in both capability and the size of its arsenal. So we could potentially have, you know, two peers, two peer adversaries, or or I would submit the Russian nuclear arsenals already superior, but you could have a an additional peer in China and then the North Koreans, you know, you know, we'll see where they stop, but it, it puts us in a difficult position. And I think, you know, lots of folks have written, Matt Kronig and others have written about what does it mean to have an inferior arsenal vis-a-vis your adversary? How do you see this playing out as the United States still tries to maintain its position as sort of the father of the international order that maintains, despite Russian and Chinese efforts to sort of topple the liberal international order while the U.S. tries to maintain it? How, what dynamics do you see at play and, and, you know, how do you see this sort of playing out over time? And now before you answer that, I was looking at our, our clock and it's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. So when we come back, I want you to answer that question. 
You're listening to Nuclecast, and we're talking with Rafi Cohen, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking with Rafi Cohen from RAND. He's the director of strategy and policy there. And so I gave you a big question before the break. What say you, Rafi? So I think there's a couple of things here, Adam. You know, first and foremost, I think particularly B2B nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons are now back into the conversation in a way that they haven't been up until February 22, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where you begin to have Russia making a serious threat of actually employing nuclear weapons for the first time that I can remember of a major power threatening that in a live conflict. And I think that has had a dramatic effect on the policy community at large. I mean, there has always been a nuclear policy community that's been very seed with nuclear deterrence and the nuclear arsenal. But for the majority of even defense policymakers, nuclear war was and nuclear deterrence has been sort of in the background, something that was important. but you know, unless the Air Force was flying a nuclear weapon across the country and, uh, in ways that they shouldn't be, uh, really wasn't front of mind. I think that has changed, and the conversation in Washington has changed. Now, second, I think I, we do have to take a hard look at how we size uh, nuclear arsenal, given the dimension that you, uh, that you noted, particularly as China fledged uh, uh, feels a full-fledged triad. Um, that means that we have to think harder about how we conduct deterrence in that realm. And then the last thing here that I would note is that, um, you know, I think it's important that we realize that while it's the United States versus Russia and China, it's also the United States, Britain, France, by particularly vis-a-vis Russia. I mean, the French have been relatively explicit that they are nuclear. They are nuclear power. I was talking to some French policymakers just the other day. In fact, they were saying, you know, people need to remember that we're also a nuclear power, and we view all of Europe, to include Ukraine, as part of our under our nuclear umbrella. Uh, so I think we, we need to think about sizing our own nuclear deterrent, but it also I think we need to think about how we interact with our allies, particularly vis-a-vis nuclear deterrence as well, in sort of new ways as well, given that we're entering a more complicated and potentially more dangerous world. So if if you were to give advice in which, you know, somebody says, Rafi, I, I need to know how we, the United States, deter the Chinese from launching an invasion or an attack on Taiwan. What advice would you give them? So for starters, I would make sure that the Russians lose in Ukraine. Because what, oh no, and, uh, you know, you're laughing at them, but I, I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm serious here in the sense sure. that if I want she to be really concerned that 
an invasion that people thought was a slam dunk go will go south is you watch your neighbor you know in what was supposed to be this sort of triumphal cakewalk that would last a couple days you know not only go really badly south but shake the very core of the game because at the as much as she wants to unify Taiwan uh, with Taiwan and achieve the China dream. He also wants to make sure that the CCP stays in power. And so ensuring, increasing that doubt in his mind, I think, is one of the strongest ways to do that. Now, I think in addition to preventing, you know, in addition to in, uh, increasing deterrence in that respect, and that sort of reputational effect, I think there's a lot of concrete capabilities we want to give to Taiwan to make sure that Taiwan develops on its own that will increase its chances of having successful deterrence. And you can talk about mines, you can talk about anti-ship missiles, you can talk about underwater capabilities, long-range strikes and the like. So I think the capability component is important, but the reputational and the willpower aspect is also important as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I wonder if if you know we've always had american tripwire forces you know in in europe for the sake of you know saying hey you know if you do come west you the russians come west and you're going to have to kill americans and that's going to that's going to lead to war i wonder if if it's timing i mean we had if i recall correctly in the by the early 70s we had a a division up until the 70s we had a division of the U.S. Army was in Taiwan, I think. And so there have been periodic times when we've had quite a bit of U.S. presence in Taiwan. And I wonder if it's, is it time to, you know, to, to bring U.S. forces back to Taiwan as a, as a deterrent, as potentially a tripwire force? Is there, you know, is there more the U.S., Japan, China, or U.S., Japan, South Korea, and other nations can do to, you know, to sort of stave off Chinese efforts towards Taiwan? Yeah, I mean, so the idea of a tripwire is interesting. I mean, I think it's important for your listeners to realize is that China of the 1970s and China of today are two very different animals. So the moment we begin to say, well, we're going to put a division back in Taiwan, um, you are going to get a Chinese react, and we better be prepared for that. Um, maybe still want to try it anyhow, but that's a very risky move, and you need to weigh the cost and benefit very closely. In terms of other ways you can do to deter uh, deter China, I think some of it is what we're doing already with the strengthening of the Quad, um, our relationship with Japan, Australia, and um, and India. Um, some of it is also with via the AUKUS agreement, uh, so all uh, increasing coordination between. And Australia, particularly in the underwater dimension, but there's also important things we are doing in strengthening the defense industrial base across across the uh, across that alliance or that subset of uh, countries. So I think there's a plenty we can do in the diplomatic um, ally coordination realm uh, that I think is probably somewhat less risky than you know, actual tripwire that. You can do go that 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 ramp, but there are there are significant risks with that uh, course of action. Now, I don't know if you've ever read. There's a guy Peter Zehan who writes some, 
you know, I, I'll, I've enjoyed reading his books. He's, he's sort of, a, a, you know, he measures trends and tries to make predictions, you know, on what's going to happen. And one of his big predictions is that we're going to experience a, a period of deglobalization. And so as I was thinking about deglobalization and, you know, according to him, the United States is the best, best country in the world, best position country for a period of deglobalization, just because of our natural, you know, sort of benefits. But I, I wonder, I, it got me thinking about China and the U S relationship with China and sort of our commercial relationship and absent sort of some of the products, you know, with where they mine rare earths and there's a few other things that they do. I would say they largely benefit most. I mean, we get a lot of, you know, less expensive goods that could potentially be made in Bangladesh or you pick another place. I mean, Africa is a, you know, much closer region that if we could get the labor ride and the tech ride and stable governments, you could potentially manufacture quite a bit there and, and help the, the continent. But I, I wonder, do you see sort of any deglobalization and this sort of a, a cutting? Because as I think back to this U.S.-Soviet relationship, I mean, American universities and particularly graduate school programs in, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math were not filled with Soviet citizens. And U.S. companies, you know, tech companies and engineering firms were not filled with you know, Soviet, uh, American educated Soviet citizens in some of the respects, the way we see the U S today. And so, you know, I, I wonder if there's going to be this retrenchment in which there's a decoupling between the U S and, you know, everything from trade to the U S educating Chinese citizens to employing Chinese nationals to something that, sort of more resembles the U.S. Soviet relationship where, you know, it was, there was sort of always this separation between the two. And when we did, you know, work together, it was, you know, sort of, sort of a very careful effort and, you know, or, or is it, do you think it'll always stay sort of, you know, pretty well bound up as it is now? So let me, start by saying that I'm not an economist. Uh, so, you know, some of my colleagues probably can have a more informed uh, opinion on this than uh, I can. I will say a couple different points here. First, I think it's important for us to distinguish between deglobalization and separating, or in particular, risking from China. So that means we can very well not want to depend on China for various minerals or for key technologies, key manufacturing capabilities um, for a whole bunch of reasons, for national security reasons. Um, that's different than breaking down deglobalization, which means breaking down trade at large, right? So as we have this push to uh, decouple from China, particularly in critical national security fields, we've seen an increase in our uh, desire to sort of unite the industrial bases. You know, AUKUS would be a good example here, uh, the uh, Australia-UK uh, relationship, which has as an explicit component of it trying to sort of unite the defense industrial bases of those countries as well. So the idea is that we want to move our manufacturing capability to friendly countries, so across 
the Five Eyes Alliance, the Quad NATO, and the like. Um, somewhat different than deglobalization, but uh, it's only de-risking from China. Then, then second, though, I think it's important to understand it for historical context here. We're starting from a very different starting point with our relationship with China than our relationship with the Soviet Union. Um, again, I would have to look up the figures here, but I think our trade with China annually is hundreds of billions of dollars. Oh, for uh, sure, yeah. It's... Yeah, it's, it's not something that could change overnight. Um, sure. It, you know, when you talk about moving that amount of trade into other parts of the world, that that is a slow process. So that may be uh, something we could do over the long haul, um, and, and we, if we can do it at all. Um, but that's a very different starting point than we were with the Soviet Union. Where we started from a very low baseline, and therefore the idea that we could separate um, into two separate economic spheres was possible. Um, so I think it's it's important to understand the you know, that different starting point here. But in, and then the final point I would say is like, should we want to be reliant on the Chinese for key national security uh, forces, be it their lost minerals, but other you know key manufacturing ability? That's certainly something that we should and are looking into, um, and that's something that I think this administration, under the Biden administration, but also the Trump administration, that's sort of bipartisan. There's a bipartisan push here. Uh, for good national security reasons. Now, I don't know when when you were in the desert uh, after you know nine eleven. I don't know if you were able to come back with a magic lamp, but but I I did come back with a magic lamp, and 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 so what I wanted to do uh, since we're coming to the end of the show is. I'm going to give you, because my genie is a very generous genie, his name's Bob, and he allows guests on Nuclecast to make three wishes about the future. And so if if Bob gives you three wishes about the global future, Rafi, what are, what are your three wishes? My three wishes. Well, first off, wish number one is that I get a genie named Bob for my own. <laughs> I must have missed that. Um, you know, wish number two is that you know we fix some of the systemic partisan gridlock in Washington uh, that impacts national security. The fact that we are continuously stuck in continuing revolutions that prevent new stars really hamstring our defensibility, but it prevent uh, hamstring our ability to conduct a coherent foreign policy as well. So if we can suddenly fix that partisan gridlock, and more broadly that sort of hyper-partisan divide inside the United States as a whole, I think we will be a stronger country for it, and we will be better able to deter our major adversaries. And, you know, indeed, I think I'm less concerned about our ability to deter China or winning Ukraine than I am about some of our internal risks here at home. And then my sword and final wish, I think, would be that we keep the U.S.-China relationship at a slow boil, right? In other words, we are going to compete with them, um, but we want deterrence to succeed. We 
want this to be in the global competition realm and not in an outside war, right? Because if we turn up that dial too much, or she turns up that dial too much, the two-way dial, um, you know, and we end up in a hot conflict with China, I think we are going to be, you know, the entire global economy is going to suffer, the United States will suffer, China will suffer as well. That's not a place that we want to be in. So, you know, my hope, or final hope for the future is that we keep that, that relationship on a, in the realm of competition, maybe tense competition, but not in that competition. All right. Rafi Cohen, thanks for uh, those three wishes. Uh, Bob will do, of course, his best to grant them. And uh, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Well, thank you so much for having me, Adam. It's been fun. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. And we will see you on the next episode of NucleCast. Well, that was a pretty wide-ranging discussion. I mean, we went from, is the war in Ukraine uh, good for deterrence or bad for deterrence in regards to China to, you know, we talked about recruiting and we the future of the force and we talked about you know tripolarity so uh, you know Rafi's sort of a big thinker at Rand and he's always you know he's involved in a lot of projects and so he sees sort of what his staff is is writing and thinking about and so he's he's sort of a great person to have to come talk about you know, a broad swath of topics that are, because, you know, in the end, these are all interrelated. And so you can't really talk about one topic without thinking about the second and third order effects. So having Rafi on to do that was great. It was great. Hopefully you enjoyed it. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frumpall. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.